0: Hello and welcome to Chipping Away, where your host, Saakash Indurga, take you on journeys of archaeology and anthropology of South Asia. Thank you for all the listeners who have tuned in and have reached out to us. All of you out there in India, in South Asia, in Europe or wherever you are, thank you so much for your enthusiasm and encouragement. Today's episode is for you. All of you who have tuned in and reached out to us, just shows the enthusiasm for history, archaeology, and anthropology, and an innate need to know more about the human past. May to be in South Asia or outside. However, all of this enthusiasm comes with a grain of salt. What if the enthusiastic efforts to know more about the past are misdirected?
1: With great power comes great responsibility.
0: Let me tell you a story to illustrate what I just said. So in my fieldwork, I encountered sometimes, and this one time in particular, when an abandoned site, archaeologically dated to around medieval period in South Asia, was abandoned and was intact since around 15th century of Common Era. I was overjoyed to look at this site in its pristine condition. However, some enthusiasts took it upon themselves to quote-unquote clear the site and segregate the material at the site. Unfortunately, because they did not have the technical know-how of archaeology, they could not ascertain which cultural material belongs to which period, and they just clumped it together. And now what we are left with is a clump of unusable material. Uh, Because it is not dated, it is not contextualized, and we don't really know what was the purpose of the material or where it sat in the site.
1: And as we all know, context is the most important element in archaeological research. Without knowing the context of a find, well, the find is nothing more than a showpiece.
0: That's true, that we should be cognizant that we have a team of experts when we are going out in the field and trying to explore the hidden facets of history. So today's episode is more on that.
1: Yes, public archaeology. That is where people who are initiated into the field of archaeology or familiar with its methodology get together with people who are enthusiastic about the field to know more about the field and we share this insight so they can empower themselves to be self-reliant inquirers of the past.
0: So this is not to say that the enthusiasts are not a valuable addition to the cause of archaeological study but the trained archaeologists and enthusiasts should work together as a team rather than as competitors.
1: Exactly. At the end of the day when we work together we can do a lot of things together. So this kind of cooperation can be in many forms. So it could be in the form of museums having open days wherein people from all walks of life can come and check out their exhibits to learn more about it. It could also involve workers in the field giving public lectures, uh, writing popular articles, hosting a podcast, for instance. (laughs) And it also involves, say, a lot of traveling exhibitions wherein institutions and individuals working on a particular site take their information to different spaces at ground level so people who are in that area know about their own history. Because at the end of the day, if the historical record of the region is culturally imbibed, then the chances of its protection are much greater. So to know more about what is public archaeology and how we can go about it, we have with us today, Ms. Lata. Lata is the founder of Chai with History, as well as a history teacher who specializes in teaching history to non-history students. Hello, ma'am.
0: Hello, ma'am. Hi.
1: Hi.
0: Thank you for having me here. That was the kind of welcome we always expect from all our guests.
1: Exactly. You've been our most enthusiastic guest so far. Hey, thank you for being here.
0: Bounce, bounce, bounce.
1: <laughs> well, our discussion today revolves around public archaeology. Before we get in, what is public archaeology?
2: public archaeology is is where uh, the community any anybody who is interested in knowing about the past of a particular area where they are residing or you know the country that they come from if if they are interested it is it is uh, they they just have to uh, understand how to go about their interest it starts off in many countries as a hobby Okay. And uh, but many of them end up becoming researchers in their own right. Now, we know that there is uh, a thin line that separates an academic research model from having a hobby interest. And it is this particular gap that public archaeology tends to uh, fill. In a country like India, where I work, uh, that we don't have any government guidelines for public archaeology. So, it it becomes a little difficult. We don't know how much we can do because in India, historical data is owned by the government. So, we really don't know how much uh, we can do. So, what I typically do is when interested people who have found stuff or they want to publish stuff, uh, ask me, I can only guide them to uh, societies that would accept their work or to um, the relevant government offices they need to go. So, I become this um, headhunter kind of a, you know, networker sort of a thing many times. But more than that, as a public archaeologist, uh, my contribution, I would say, uh, would be to actually provide theoretical basis to their interest. And I find that this is what is really working for Chai with history
1: here. Interesting. So, yeah, according to you, you could say a public archaeologist is a liaison between the academic field of archaeology and the public to whom the archaeology belongs to.
2: Absolutely.
1: Wonderful. And uh, this undertaking, Chai with History, that you brought up and you're a founder of, could you tell us something about it?
2: So Chai with History started sometime in uh, 2012. And uh, one of the motivations for it was a crackpot case that happened uh, Uh, in Maharashtra. So we have this entire thing in the Indian constitution where you know it is a fundamental duty of every citizen to value and preserve the rich heritage of our composite culture. It's actually there in the constitution. There's a lot of uh, motivated uh, you know young adults who have started coming out of their offices, homes And these are not trained in history or archaeology. They may be engineers, young doctors, uh, business uh, students, art students, activists. Uh, They could be just about anybody. And uh, they come together and they start uh, doing their version of cleaning up things. Okay, so uh, in 2012, 2010 or 2011, I think, uh, uh, we had a very peculiar case which actually hit the headlines where a bunch of young people they got together as a history club and they went to a fort in Maharashtra and decided to clean up the fort. So during this cleaning they actually managed to remove all the mounds within the fort. Okay they thought dirt and garbage. They removed the bricks because it was broken. They removed the pottery. Wow. <laughs> They removed the pottery. So technically, what they left behind was a wall, you know, the fort wall, and just nothing inside it. A lot of people, in fact, one of my friend had spent his life documenting these forts and things like that. And, you know, there was a Big Galata and, you know, big problem happened. It went to court, police was called and all sorts of things happened. But at the root of this action was pure ignorance. You know, people didn't know what a mound looks like. And uh, I think that day, you know, we were all sitting in campus and having chai and discussing these things and you know some of us at least must get get into public networking get on facebook and things like that and uh, you know start talking to people at least you know i mean because we don't know who they are we don't know from where they are getting their information or you know th- what their perspective is because the dividing line between academics and non academics is very very high we actually speak different languages So, I started a little thing on Facebook, and then somebody asked if, you know, in, so I live in Bangalore in India. So, uh, somebody asked, can you do sessions in Bangalore? So, I said, okay, let's do it. And that kind of grew and uh, grew. So, yeah, it's been there now since 2013. Uh, We're having online sessions during the lockdown. We've had at least one, about 12 or 13 sessions every year, otherwise, where we are having a live interface. Um, scholars and students, uh, PhD scholars have come to talk to public and uh, the forum is quite uh, it's very it's run on very simple models we sit under the tree in in a big park in bangalore and you know just just converse over tea and coffee and whatever snacks we get it's it's quite casual and uh, friendly
1: that's true i mean as somebody who's participated in these sessions i would say it's been eye opening the way that uh, archaeology is uh, conducted in the fold of academics and how people perceive it
2: yeah. A lot of people just just don't know uh, the words that they should hunt down. I mean, they don't know how to they, they have access. It's there on the internet, but they don't know what words to look for. So it's these small little things and and uh, over the years what I've seen these little interactions for a couple of Hours in a month, you know, uh, that's all we do. And uh, their blog spots started improving. Their slideshows started improving. And uh, I, they some some of them have started putting references, you know, from wherever mm-hmm. they're getting the books. They're also reading more books. And I think that it's a personal achievement uh, for me. I mean, I, I thoroughly love it because so much is actually happening and the change is very obvious.
0: I think it's really creditable to give a worthy direction instead of true. five different ideas scattered in different places. Absolutely. absolutely. And I'm also very curious about the name Chai with History.
2: We sit in this little park on a on a park bench under a tree. And uh, the government canteen is just behind us. And he was making better chai than coffee. So I just called it chai. <laughs> no long stories. <laughs> yeah.
0: But I think it also plays into this liaison of a role. Mm-hmm. where chai, a very common like, daily beverage.
2: It's, it's a casual.
0: Exactly. links with history, a more academically sought discipline.
1: And in times like this, wherein, you know, we're currently living in post-fact societies and where the truth itself is relative and subjective and everybody has their own version of truth. It's important for us to get the truth out there. It's
2: also very important for people to understand what data is and what interpretation is. Once that happens happens i find you know the discussion the quality of discussion the way they are participating even in facebook dialogue you know all these massive debates that is happening on social network and all that so i mean even the way these same people you know that the way they are participating is obviously changing this they, they start putting references you know from research gate in the middle of uh, a very very uh, propagandist and uh, whatever discussions that is happening it's it's quite fun and you know
1: <laughs> that's true you bring up a very important point about interpretation all reconstructions of the past is an interpretation by someone in their present with their own objectives, with their own goals with their own perspectives and through time because people's perspectives has changed even their interpretation of the past has changed and i think it's up to people who are working with the past to ensure that the society keeps up with these changing interpretations. Would you say so? True.
2: Sure. Yeah. So essentially, you know, um, I mean, I'm a student of Degen College uh, founded by Hei Professor Sankalia. And, uh, you know, when you read his book, Born for Archaeology, which thoroughly influenced my life and, you know, even the little temple that I worked with for my dissertation, I, I took it up right up to, you know, I, continued to work with the Panchayat office and and made sure that that little structure was actually conserved. It's it's not just, uh, you know, because the structure itself gets reinterpreted. Data kind of remains the same but it's the structure that gets reinterpreted. So an Abrahara temple, which, which belongs to a very specific community and caste. And, and in India, the caste lines are very, very large. So this particular structure didn't have anyone around them that you know to whom that structure belonged to. So essentially, we have to make sure that the community around it Around this particular structure, if they start developing a romance with it, you know, a passion for it, or a religious connection, or some sort of a connection, there has to be some sort of a connection for today's community with that monument. And uh, that takes a lot of, you know, conversation, and you have to make sure that at least for the next 50 years. At least, you know, if, if we could do that, if it gets that that, that that is all that I think of, you know, in the next 50 years, <laughs> will it be there? What can I do to, you know, keep the people together? But this this doesn't always happen. There are a lot of well-meaning uh, enthusiasts of history who try to do this, but they kind of mess it up because they just don't know the art of conversation. This structure doesn't belong to you. You know, it's, it's very complex society like India where you know like for instance I mean Durga you are from Maharashtra I'm from Karnataka we have so much difference it's it's not a joke at all there's so many things that you are doing your your jewellery is different the clothes you wear is different your rituals that you have in your house is different and I mean we are, we are speaking English as a common thing I don't know your language you don't know my language and therefore you don't know a lot of things we just we don't really understand each other completely and it's a a very very difficult thing if anybody actually manages to interact that way Uh, but when we start talking about subaltern groups and the upper caste in India the language difference is so high that it's it's almost impossible to you know bridge this and it has to be done with with a lot of empathy and we, we just don't want to see beyond what we can understand and this kind of a gap needs some really serious thought. And I think a lot of researchers should also, you know, start communicating because that is what Sankalia said, you know, you, can't, you cannot preserve history and culture if, if you don't talk to the community uh, where the artifact, where that history uh, is standing. How long are you going to sit there in one place? And, you know, do you want to fence it? How long will you stay there? whatever that you have found you have to educate the community to which it belongs the public archaeology in india i would say you know it has these three components where you give them data just some people just need data some people need a reference point some people must be taught how to look you know, they're, they're traveling great distances, but they don't know what to look for. And, uh, you know, you just give them a little bit. And yeah, this also again, you know, happened in Chayvith history. Uh, there's a young engineer and uh, he's been, you know, coming with these hero stones. We have these undocumented hero stones, thousands of hero stones. We, we just have to keep these. We have to document this. So yeah, he's been coming with me for a couple of trips, and you know he got really excited. So during the lockdown, he's gone for a run in his neighborhood, and he said, "I found another large site. It has about eleven hero stones, which is is totally magical. I mean because this area is is you know it's getting flattened on a daily basis. So there are some happy stories that have come from the interaction." But public archaeology, I think uh, more and more academics should be coming out and talking to the public in easy, simpler languages. And I think uh, that that would really be lovely. It would would really help in conservation. It would help in documentation. That's what's happening now. And um, eventually the protection of the rich culture and heritage this country has.
0: Oh, wow. That was lovely you talk to or instruct or discuss things related to history with a diverse population or people coming from various backgrounds so what is your approach like or what is the cheat sheet to be precise
2: cheat sheet okay cheat sheet is uh don't have too many points don't very complicated story okay you'll have to break down the story so it's not like you're going to take the Mahabharata completely and you're going to finish it in two hours. You can take one single character. You know, you can introduce them to mythic archetypes, for instance. Okay, and and also you will have to converse with them to find out what they know, which means you have to give them an opportunity to speak. That that's very important because otherwise you cannot assess uh, what language to use with them. So uh, I I start talking about physics, you know, because. When there are too many engineers, I I start saying, okay, so this is how that, you know, interpreted something. This is the history of something. And uh, the third thing is to keep their interest contemporary. You know, a lot of people, when they start talking, they just go away right to the back and uh, you can't really connect with it. So when you start contemporizing history, a lot of people understand it better. Um, also, history uh, in your house. You know, you have to give them an opportunity to talk about history in their own house, and give them examples, and and tell them to go back and start exploring that. If if you can't find anything, just start talking about the history of the T-shirt or or if on their dress. You know, especially in Indian uh, clothes, we have such. Very, very old motives are there, and, and it makes a very interesting story. Uh, at the end of any session, they must be aware that there is history everywhere and, and not just in one little monument, in that site, there. You know, uh, it's not enough. You shouldn't be going somewhere else to uh, generate a historical appreciation. It's it's there wherever you are. And as the uh, themes, as the research method, uh, you know, sinks in, uh, you will find that it, it works. It, it needs a conversation, I would say.
0: So I think conversation is the key.
1: True. And at least in India, because we have living traditions, we can trace continuity from forever. I
2: got a story. I got a story for that one also. Living tradition is one big thing in India so we (laughs) had some really hilarious things so acrylic paints were being used to uh, protect very old buildings and uh, there was this huge activist movement against it so one conservation group came up with this brilliant idea of using organic paints just like in the old days Now, the problem with organic paints is that it fades very rapidly, which does not actually suit the Indian psyche or the Indian color psychology or even the rituals itself. The rituals itself say that everything must be very, very colorful. I mean, we are a monsoon country, for God's sake. Okay. It it takes one one season for the paints to fade away. If it's organic paints, it it just it just disappears within, you know, half a season, half a monsoon season. It created such a ridiculous expense to that little temple trust that I have no idea how these things work in living history. So one thing that you must understand about the culture of India is that we have constantly changed. We have constantly used different materials. We have Birla Temple, for instance. Uh, we have Iskon temples which uses fiberglass. And uh, if anybody tells me that these two places are not religious or not uh, spiritually benefiting, nobody is no Hindu is going to believe that. Uh, so when you are saying it has to be exactly like the past what you're trying to attain is not conserving the past what you are trying to attain here is botoxifying the monuments you know that that is what is happening most of the time so again it's a matter of empathy enthusiasm is sweet your intention is sweet if you don't think through the entire concept especially for a living structure where newer rituals come into place or like what has happened just now some of them are closed uh, the cabbage is not getting picked up because everybody thinks it's closed but people just go and leave one flower there and come back so even the temple is closed but i mean you have to think through the entire system when you work with living uh, traditions
0: That's a very valuable point i wasn't thinking on the aspect of closed temples but still creating garbage. So that had escaped my thought as well. All your Maramma
2: temples, uh, Durga, you have worked with the epidemic gods.
0: Yes. So, I mean, they're all going and lighting
2: lamps and all that. That's true. The temples today. In a short this is the sewing season in India. It just started. Yes. So all the villages have started doing the Mariyai, uh, you know, the epidemic goddess Pujas have started so that the sowing, the harvest is bountiful. They're doing animal sacrifice. The, uh, I mean, everything is happening. India is a living, living heritage you know, nothing has really changed for for a very long time. So to say that the temple is closed, the government order is there, but uh, (laughs) how effective it depends on whether people will abide by it. Right, that's true. (laughs) That is why even the government also should, you know, uh, network with public archaeologists and archaeologists and when they think of a decision saying, let us close all the temples. (laughs) they should have some cultural sensitivity.
0: Right. And I think through Chai with History, you also visit temples and various sites and have walking tours. Yes. So what is your intention like connecting the public with the site? Like what are the points that you stress on more?
2: Uh, One I do is site catchment analysis. I like to uh, recreate Situation where the temple was being built, long, long, long ago. Okay, uh, if if they can um, attain a s- little bit of imagination, then they'll be able to look at the temple in the context of the past and appreciate it. You know, back there, rather than you know sitting in twenty-first century and saying, "Oh, temples are this or temples are that, and forts are this and forts are." that which actually is not historical appreciation, but it becomes a very superficial experience. But once you get the contextual background of the site, uh, and you start imagining people walking like a sculptor going and, you know, choosing the rock and, and actually, you know, the technology that would be involved. I mean, there's no JCB, there are no cranes, nothing. I mean, just, just saying these few words um, when you start off on a heritage walk uh, makes a huge impact. It, it's, it's very important for them to travel in time and not just around the site.
1: And even if they didn't have probably JCBs and stuff, they probably had aliens.
2: Oh, of course, yes. We, we've, had, we've had lots of aliens.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that is my pet peeve. And, and then we've, had, uh,
2: we've had amazing strength and things like that. A hundred-year-old man comes and lifts the stones to build temples and you know, <laughs> all sorts of things, yeah. And there's, there's a story in Bangalore which says that there were something like about 10,000 elephants or something like that. And, and there's no habitation of the mahouts, the stables, nothing. But uh, yeah, fantasy creation. Yeah, we need to separate that fantasy creation also. That as the data comes in, you know, they kind of slip away from fantasy. So that, that kind of natural time.
0: And I think you mentioned a very valuable point here. When the data comes in, these narratives and fanciful stories automatically make an exit. And probably that is the key piece we need for public archaeology, where most of the people come in with a certain narrative or fanciful idea. For example, Pandavas creating all the rocket caves in India, for instance. <laughs> or things like that, which needs to be disengaged from fanciful narrative material data.
2: All the dolmens are supposed to be Pandava houses, by the way, in this area, in, in South India. <laughs> yeah. They call it Pandava Ramane And, you know, it's, it's the, all the big double cysts. And we have beautiful dolmens down here in South India. So I, everybody thinks that it's it's been built by the Pandavas. And you're like, OK, they, they not only have they been traveling so much, they all, all have the time to build everything. But of course, they had Bhima on their side. So, you know, he can lift stones and crubs <laughs> down.
1: For all those who are interested in what dolmens are, check out our previous episode on the megaliths.
0: Yay! <laughs> so, would you like to talk a little bit about sort of segregating uh, fantasy or alien theories and material culture?
1: Or do you think we should embrace it and you know go the whole mile with it?
0: <laughs> <laughs> Typically,
2: I've never had the challenge. Because uh, whenever there is an inquiry about, is it possible for humans to make any anything that has happened? Um, if you can trace the narrative right back to prehistory, you know, something like what Akash has been studying, we have to understand that our ancestors were not idiots. I mean, the moment you understand that, then, you know, you can follow up. I mean, to make a simple hand act, incredible cognition is needed. And I use quite a few tools from cognitive archaeology when I get passionate and I'm like, oh, yeah. And then I see thing called cognitive archaeology, which, and a lot of researchers are trying to work on, you know, understanding the mind of the ancestor. And they're like, oh, the ancestor had a mind. I'm like, yes, they had a mind. So, <laughs> you know, um, once you start doing that, they kind of start respecting their uh, ancestors beyond the uh, obvious. And, and then I do this, I do this very naughty thing. I call it uh, linguistic appreciation through history. I have, I teach my Ramayana and Mahabharata as ling- in linguistics. I start with Sita, you know, the plough. I start with that. Uh, that. That sort of really, I mean, people are a little shocked, of course, because it's, it's such a drastic shift from what they're seeing on History Channel or in the propagandist uh, blogs and, and videos. So, and, and this is so testable. I show them Sanskrit dictionary, you know, which Sanskrit dictionary you should go to. It's all free sources. When I do public archaeology, I try and work with free sources so people can go back to the link and check it up. They have to know that I am not lying. I'm not making it up. I'm connecting random dots, which they think is random. But for a researcher, it is not random. Those who are with the research mind, this is how we do the connection of the dots to understand the past, to reconstruct the past, which is our job, man. We get paid for it. And if you can, you put through those dots, because they don't know which dots come. Most people don't know what dots to go to. So give them a Sanskrit-English dictionary. If you're working with it, okay, when I do the Jataka tales, I use a Pali English t- dictionary. I take it to my session and I say, you need, you see what the meaning of the word is. And when you do that sort of a very effective concept, especially when you're working with literature, literature as a source of history, nothing like a dictionary, I tell you. Dictionaries are absolute saviors.
0: I really appreciate your approach, like linguistically to look at these sources so that you can peel the layers and, really get to the metaphors and latent symbologies, instead of just the fanciful ideas of, oh, Sita or Rama.
2: Yeah. In cognitive archaeology, uh, you have to understand that people will fantasize. Right. So what you can actually start, uh, you know, reconstructing is under what circumstances do people fantasize, which brings it to contemporization pure fantasy where there is an amazing narrative where you know it's so compiled and uh, it's it, there is meter, there is language we're talking about the employment of scholars here not every generate that sort of edited uh, you know concepts and that costs money you can only have a beautiful Saga in in the most prosperous situation. So this is another thing that I do. I bring in a lot of economic theory, and uh, I, I must thank my education for that. So I I read up a lot of economics, and uh, you know, crowds that are coming into these sessions nowadays, they they are all looking at the economics of it. They're very aware of the economics, the stock market, or anything. So the moment I start talking about, you know, it's it's. Open market liberalisation and and that's how Humpy became Humpy. They all, you know, <laughs> bring the Banya into it, and everybody understands everything. So yeah, these two things really work: the money flow and linguistics, and uh, everybody understands
1: these two things. Well, the more things change, the more something stay the same. I guess
2: there are universal patterns, there are universal archetypes. And uh, once you figure that out, that's the whole thing. You know, most people uh, cannot figure out the universality of things.
1: Correct.
2: Uh, Once you fix the universality of things, then it's it's, it's absolutely partying. And then you can actually see, oh, there's a mystery. What is the the mystery is something that is not within your caste or subcaste or in your religion, in your food, or in your area. That is the only mystery that exists in Indian history. The moment you incorporate another community into the study, you understand the mystery. True. So pretty straightforward. Indian history is actually quite simple to comprehend. But, you know, we need to bring in different groups of people to look at the data. And I'm sure... Uh, very very straightforward narrative can be created be able to appreciate our ancestors better as, as humans rather than as some ideal concept uh, you know that people fantasize about
1: okay on that note i think we'll call it a wrap i suggest everybody check out chai with history on facebook and instagram and let's keep the dialogue
0: going thank you lata thank you bye 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 so on that note let's wrap up for today and we'll see you next time in a matter of 15 days right here at Chippin' Away. Let's keep the conversation going on Twitter and Instagram at Chippin' Away IND. And feel free to send us your comments, feedback and suggestions at Chippin' Away at gmail.com. So keep chipping away. Until next time. Bye-bye.